Hey, Backtalk listeners, Sarah here with just a quick note. Our next propaganda podcast episode is called Raising Feminist Kids, and we want to share your stories and your ideas. So here's the question. What's one thing that you do to help kids grow up into feminist adults? Record a voice memo about just one conscientious thing that you keep in mind while interacting with kids, your kids, friends, kids, students, cousins, any kids, they don't have to be yours, and email it to us at sarah at bword.org. So that's a voice memo about raising feminist kids and email it to sarah with an h at bword.org. Thanks and keep an ear out for your stories and ideas on next week's propaganda. Hello and welcome to Back Talk, the show where two feminist people talk about this week in pop culture. I'm Sarah Merck. I'm the online editor of Bitch Media, which means I have been counting down the seconds until election day when we'll finally be done with this mess. <laughs> and I am Amy Lamb, contributing editor, and I am also just hanging in there. <laughs> oh it's gosh. just like I feel like we're clawing toward the finish line one day at a time. Yeah, it's it's been... It's it's been hard. It's been be a honest. hard road. Yeah. Oh, well, that ties into my favorite piece of pop culture this week. Um, is this article in the New York Times by Susan Faludi called "How Hillary Clinton Met Satan"? That's about the demon. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it's called. <laughs> it's about the the demonization of Hillary Clinton and other powerful women in politics. And by demonization, I mean the literal demonization. Like how since Hillary Clinton started. Um, becoming a national figure in 1992, um, Republican men have seen her as like a devil figure. Um, that she's been demonized traits for tra- she's been demonized for traits that have little to do with her character, um, and see and like Republican men seeing her as a recruitment tool, like literally describing her as a witch or as a devil or giving her devil horns, and. The, the section, the quote that I really like from this piece that just like hits the nail on the head with how I've been feeling and the stuff I've been reading is Susan Flutie writes, the GOP's gender grudge feeds on its own defeat as the culture moves further away from the conservative ideal as women gain freedoms, minorities assert rights, same-sex marriage proves commonplace, the monster's howl grows louder. But the howls say nothing new. This election is the decisive battle in a 30 years war. And I think that just sums up how I've really been feeling during this election is like, really, we're still dealing with this shit? Like, you're still saying this stuff? Like, there's this like conspiracy theory, like one of the many conspiracy theories of this election is that Hillary Clinton smells like sulfur (laughs) because (laughs) she's a demon. And like, this is something that like right wing people are actually saying is like, oh, yeah, you know, Hillary Clinton, she smells like sulfur because she's a demon. Wow. Oh, boy. It's like like when you just have nowhere else to go with your criticism, you just call them like straight up monsters. Like, you know, a boogeyman underneath the bed. I mean, it's not a new thing for powerful women to be called witches and demons, you know, and maybe in one week from now, we will see this this tide like it will pass into the distance, you know, maybe this, the howls will finally become a little quieter um, if she's actually elected president. Well, maybe we'll just have the first like witch in office. So. First witch in <laughs> office. Yes. <laughs> Turn the white house over to Satan. <laughs> Paint it black. 
Well, I mean, why not? Let's see what happens. Like, can't be any weirder than shit has been in the past, like, 200 years or whatever, so. I'm all about having having a witch in the Oval Office. Um, so my favorite pop culture news this week is the Chicago Cubs. Um, because my partner, his family is originally from Chicago, so he was totally rooting them on. And the team was down 3-1, like, the series of seven games, and they crawled back from a 3-1 to win it, and it was so wild and so out of control. And it was like the last game that happened last night was so much fun to watch. It was like actually riveting, because I actually think baseball is a little bit boring, because it's nothing, yeah. not much action, but this was like action packed. It was so much fun to watch. Um, and this is like their first win in over 100 years, so... Uh, you know, you're always cheering. I love cheering for underdog teams, and this is like definitely an underdog team. And then there's also the fact that like I didn't want the Cleveland team to win because they have a really racist mascot, um, <laughs> and I think that's a legitimate reason to root against the team. And that's, <laughs> that was why I was rooting against the Cleveland team. <laughs> I'm so glad the Cubs won. Uh, and also on the Cubs, there's a player who's um, who's I think biracial Filipino and I've like never seen a Filipino player on a baseball team before it was just like a really fun series to watch and super riveting and I'm so happy for all of my friends who I didn't even know were Cubs fans like apparently I have tons of friends who are Cubs fans um and they're all crying and cheering and it's just it's like I think this is one of the things about sports that I really love it can just be like this reprieve from the real harsh fucked up world of reality like for a few hours you can just like be magnetized and like you know focus in on this baseball game that doesn't have like super real life um consequences or bearings on your day-to-day but you can just like forget your shitty day and sit in front of a tv and watch the sporting event and just like you know, have your, and it's like going through this like amazing narrative of like ups and downs and the roller coaster and there's a rain delay and the tarps come out. It's like the extra inning, you know, and you're like, will my team make it? And, and for those precious few hours, you're like, you just focus on this like group of men playing a sport. <laughs> and I think that it's like a valid, a valid way of like performing self-care. And I totally an advocate of like being a sports fan as self-care. As long as your team doesn't lose all the time. <laughs> and as long as you still get out to vote yeah. on Tuesday. <laughs> don't be so distracted by watching <laughs> sports on TV that then you don't go cast a ballot. <laughs> Thank God the World Series didn't like get extended somehow. And do something. <laughs> that would have been tragic. Okay, so the first topic we're talking about is Black Mirror, the BBC show that... Um, recently just got a new season released on Netflix. A- Amy, I know you're a big fan of the show. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, for sure. So I didn't know about Black Mirror until really recently. And um, the reason why I learned about it was because the new season was being released and it was going to be more focused or have like more American-centric narratives because the first two seasons, like you said, which was released on BBC and you can find it on Netflix, are so good um and they are all based i think in the uk or um all the actors are at least british um but the show itself is like it's uh it's like it's called the black mirror because the show maker said that um he's referencing like our phones or like our tablets or our devices like when they're off it's kind of like a black mirror surface and how we're like always 
uh, attached and looking at them and like obsessed with uh, what's going to appear on our black mirror. And so the show itself is like kind of a, an examination of like possible very near future dystopias and and like the effects of like technology on like our collective psyches um, or like the extreme capabilities of technology and how they can be used to mostly oppress us because I think that like in our present time we think of technology as a way to like free us of burdens or to like give us access um you know like we have like a whole laptop computer in our pockets essentially but I think in Black Mirror we're examining like the dark side of like what this technology could do if we don't check ourselves and how we use it the first two seasons are so amazing um because they really look at things and I think that one of the reasons why I really love the first two seasons is because the storytelling is so masterful. And I think that's one thing about, I think, British television or maybe just non-American television is that I think with American television, American television writers tend to like really feed you what you should be feeling, uh, what the characters are doing. And often there's not a lot of subtext, you know, like we're being told what a lot of like... Um, a lot of what's happening but th there are exceptions like I feel like the, in The Wire there was a lot of um opaque things I didn't know what was happening and I remember like after watching an episode of The Wire I would have to like go to Wikipedia to like read the summary to see what was and going be like, on what happened there was yeah. that, like, <laughs> there are exceptions yeah. to that rule but I think the majority of shows often like you know things are explained like ad nauseum but the beautiful thing about Black Mirror seasons one and two is that the storytelling is so masterful and like you become so invested in it and you just you slowly let yourself go and like um, follow it and let the narrative unfold in front of you and it's and as a viewer it's even it's like a much better treat and I think also as a writer it's like wow I earned I earned this reveal and that's, that's like <laughs> one of the things that I really loved about it yeah so if, if people aren't familiar with the show Black Mirror it's it seems very realistic but it has a surreal edge to it and basically in each episode is a standalone story it kind of feels like a modern twilight zone where each episode is its own narrative um and in each episode there, it centers on a new piece of technology in some way. And so in in two my two favorite episodes of the first two seasons, um, what, one of the new pieces of technology is like an app that will um, record all of the stuff that somebody who has died has put online and then acts as like a chat bot. So you can talk to the dead person be through their... It, through all, all the stuff that they've put online, through their whole digital footprint, it makes an amalgamated like, yes, this is this person, what this person is like, and you can chat with them. And then the repercussions of that. And in another episode um, that I like, uh, they have, you can get a little implant behind your ear that records all the visuals um, from your eyes. So it kind of like is like a camera in your eyes. And then you can go back and replay it and watch the, the last years of your life or watch specific moments of it. And so in those two ways, in both of those episodes and in, in all the episodes, it really explores what are the ramifications of this? What happens when this technology becomes available, both good and bad? Just like, how does it change your life? And I think it's really made me reflect on how the pieces of technology that I kind of take for granted really do have vast repercussions and have changed my daily life in a way that, you know, somebody watching my life 30 years ago might think it looks surreal or strange or upsetting. I think that the two episodes that you mentioned are, are like, are, are 
like great examples of what the series can do so well. Um, like in the one where um, you can talk to somebody who's passed, the episode's called Be Right Back. Uh, it, it's actually based on a real person's experience um where uh, this woman her one of her best friends passed away and um he i guess he led a pretty rich digital life and they were able to make it so that she could text with him and then oh wow i didn't yeah, know that yeah it, it, it's, it's somewhere online i read the story about it and like sometimes some of his other friends and family will text him every now and then and get responses that, that sound uniquely like him and uh, i think that this, the showrunners were actually inspired by this real life piece so like that technology is kind of a already on the horizon and then the other episode that you're referencing the one where you're like recording every minute of you the entire history of you i mean that that really goes to like show or like reflect how we are obsessed with like things that just happened you know and that, <laughs> that we just recorded yeah. and how we play it back but this is like to the umph degree and like the show itself is just so well done and how it like reveals like what that means to you in daily, daily life and how it can really just like it doesn't free you and it anchors you in, in a way that's like very oppressive. Yeah, in that episode, it explores some of the, you know, the positive aspects of it where people can, you know, instead of having to rely on eyewitness testimony and your faulty memory, you can have a an act, you can have a video record of everything that happened. And that is a positive for it, you know, in trials, etc. And recording crimes, they can actually see, okay, here's a videotape of what happened. But it really goes to a lot of dark places around um, feeling the, around surveillance and um, accusations. In that episode, that tool is used for both um, both by police and by security forces to be like, okay, play us back your last week and let's see what happened. As well, so it ties into surveillance state stuff like that. As well as um, from people not trusting each other and not and it actually driving people apart because instead of being able to just go on each other's word and trust each other like that. Nothing is real without video evidence and you demand that video evidence. It also made me reflect on um, just how I use technology and how in documenting things and documenting my life, does it make the things that I don't document seem less real or less important? You know, the, the things that I put on Instagram, I go back and look over, I'm like, oh yeah, those were really important special things. But what about all the stuff in between that I forgot about? And that's not something that even comes up in the show, but I think that's why the show is, is really good is because it's crafted in a way that makes me reflect on my own life and my own use of technology and to think about the more insidious ways that technology plays into personal relationships and plays into surveillance and state control. And it also like examines how like we allow and expect mediated narratives to like to inform us and it's like not even mediated narratives of like uh, public figures or celebrities or whatever but like how we create our own mediated narratives of ourselves for like our friends and family uh and, wh and what does that even like wh what does that mean about how we're living our daily lives so i think it just asks like such big questions and it's such an amazing show and so i mean i was watching the third season and sadly i wasn't as into the third season <laughs> um i i I actually feel like the best part of the third season was the trailer for the third season. It was such a good trailer. <laughs> um, I won't go into why I'm not like super excited about it, but there was one exceptional standout episode in the third season. It's called San Junipero. And um, I won't give away like the plot of it. Just, just watch it. It's episode four. Um, but it's, it's a really great episode and but my only concern about this episode and I, I don't think this is a spoiler but there's like a, a queer love story in it mm -hmm. um 
And I really loved that there was a queer love. It was like unexpected, but there are also moments where I'm just like, I, I like sometimes I feel icky that like um, queerness could be used as like a plot device because it kind of was in this one episode. And especially when you think about like the arc of all the seasons and all the other episodes, um, I can't remember another queer couple. So it feels icky when like, oh, we're going to insert like a, a really sweet, you know, love story that happens to be queer but it's part of a plot device when we don't normalize it in the other episodes. So, that's so by one plot of like, device, you mean like it doesn't actually build the characters. It's just like a weird twist or... Uh... No, it's part of the characters' narratives and it, and it makes the story... But like the story kind of has... The story um, works because the characters are queer. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess I haven't seen the episode, so... Yeah, the story could have happened if the characters were straight, but, like, it's it's somehow more, like, impactful because they're queer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it makes me feel icky because, like, there are no normalized, like, queer couples in any of the other episodes, just, mm-hmm. like, doing their daily thing. But only, only in this one where, like, the sort of the crux of the story relies on their queerness. Um, but it's a beautiful fucking episode, so you should watch it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think I've I've been really impressed in the first two seasons about just the way that the show deals with the intrusive nature of technology into relationships and how human relationships are rebuilt around technological tools. And that makes me reflect on how much of my human interactions are mediated through um, machines and especially through technology that's owned by private companies or being monitored by governments. You know, so my interactions with friends and with people I'm dating are mostly over text and Instagram and Twitter and, you know, those kind of and email and messages. And watching Black Mirror makes me think about like, okay, those are run by companies. And if those companies, you know, decide that that they want to become more intrusive into my life or sell me something or use my personal information for their profit minded ends, that that is totally happening and will potentially happen more and more and more in the future. So it's got me thinking about my technology use in that way. While you're using technology to think while about I'm using- technology. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the that's like the ultra ultimate black mirror episode. <laughs> All right, for our next topic we're talking about two big pieces of news and the way that they interact. So the first piece of news is um, the arrests at the Sacred Stone camp at Standing Rock, uh, where people have been pushing back against the plans to build the, no- the North Dakota Access Pipeline. Hundreds, if not thousands of people have been gathering at the camp for the last few months. And last week, there was a big raid by law enforcement agencies um, and private security forms where uh, about 140 people were arrested at the camp and the camp was bulldozed and there were reports of mace and rubber bullets and pepper spray and it was all in all it seemed it looked like a pretty violent encounter based on what um, people have said and photos and videos from the scene then on the same day that that was happening in North Dakota here in Oregon there was a big trial going on um, of a group of militia members who had occupied federal land in eastern Oregon last January for an entire month all of last January um, some people took over um, this federal wildlife refuge in eastern Oregon called the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge and they had lots of guns they had lots of ammunition and they t- took it over basically as a protest of federal ownership of lands and after being there for a month the FBI finally 
arrested some of the, some of the leaders and brought them to trial. And on Friday, a jury acquitted all six people of charges in the in the case. And so they the people who had taken over this federal land in eastern Oregon were found to not be guilty of anything. In the meantime, people who are occupying land in North Dakota to protest the pipeline have, are being arrested and pepper sprayed. And so that that disconnect is what we want to talk about. Um, Amy, what were your thoughts when you heard the verdict in the Mollier Wildlife Refuge um, militant case? I mean, sadly, like I was unsurprised. You know, oh, yeah. I mean, this is how this is how white supremacy operates. It's like we can do this performative. I mean, if it feels sometimes it just feels performative. We're like this mm-hmm. performative um, thing where we arrest these guys um, and put them in jail and put them on trial. But at the very end, like they don't feel real consequences um, for something that like like honestly, if, if we inserted like bodies of color at Malheur, like. I, I really can't say that, that they would um, receive the same um, the same results in the verdict, like to be found not guilty, not guilty. And just to contrast that with like the treatment that's being given to those at Standing Rock, people who are just trying to literally protect their drinking water and to protect their land, um, the contrast couldn't speak any louder to like the disparity of treatments and how, and who, how we think about certain types of people in this country and different communities. Yeah, it really speaks to to me. It really shows what do we think of as dangerous? Who do we think of as dangerous? You know, so these this group of militants who occupied the land in eastern Oregon, they're all white, right wing, Christian based, uh, mostly men. And they were there for an entire month and before the police came in to try to get them out of there. And then now they're found acquitted of all charges. You know, race definitely plays a major role in that. How would it have been different if, you know, the people who took over this refuge with guns on them weren't white? You know, how long how long would they have been there before the police came in or would they have even gotten there or would they have been, you know, pulled over on the way on the way to the refuge? And that's not to say that what my point there isn't that we need to crack down more on all people. No, my my point there is that our justice system and our police treat people differently based on their race. And that's not more clear than it has been here. Like for me, it also, it makes it scary to think that, you know, a group of armed militants can take over land and not face any consequences. You know, I wonder what we're going to see after the election, if this acquittal will, will be basically to like open season on taking over land with guns. I mean, that's a, that's a concern about, this connection and sort of like this unrest amongst like a, a, a specific type of group of people where it's like, you know, these Trump supporters and their vitriol won't end after November 8th. Um, and in fact, like it could be more dangerous if he doesn't get voted into office because they'll be more, um, they'll be more angry. They'll be more maybe ready to fight. And like you're saying, like, what if like there are more people trying to, uh, with arms take over federal property because they feel like they can. Uh, it's just, it's really, it, I think what it comes down to is just, it's really scary. You know, mm-hmm. like, like what certain groups of people can get away with um, because of their maleness, because of their cisness, because of their whiteness versus like what uh, communities who have been like historically marginalized are having to deal with just to protect like very basic human rights um, and access to things that like everybody should have access to. Here in Oregon, the 
there's been a real conservative talking point around this, this this militant occupation in Eastern Oregon of saying like, well, it's just like Occupy Wall Street, you know, in, in that protest, people took over city parks, they took over federal property as a protest. This and, and you guys, you liberals supported them. This is this is a similar thing of people taking over federal property as a protest against the federal government. Um, there's just a pronounced difference between nonviolent protest and protests that involve guns. Yeah, I mean, that's there's like a intellectual dishonesty in comparing those two types of protests, um, especially when you think about Occupy Wall Street as a movement where there were very clear intentions about what they were trying to expose or talk about. Um, and, and it was also like speaking to like a larger systemic issue, whereas the occupation at Malheur was, you know, it was talking about like, um, I think there was issues with like how they thought that federal regulations of lands was being mishandled. But it, it wasn't like about a systemic injustice being targeted at like their specific community. They just wanted to like occupy a place with their guns. It ties into our country's racial history and colonial history here because you know these people who are taking over this land in eastern oregon you know feel entitled to that land and then when you look at the protests in north dakota those are those are native-led protests of people who are on land that um that it ties into a long history of the united states like stealing land and then signing treaties, forcing the native people off that land, and then not even following those treaties. And that's the, the long history behind the protests at Standing Rock are something you, you really have to look at there and the way that, that that land has really been taken away and the people who live there have been forced off of it. So just like the, I guess to me, the occupation of Eastern Oregon just feels like such entitlement when there actually are people who have been forced off their land who are who are trying to stage uh protests and actions to bring awareness to that. Um, speaking of white entitlement and uh, white appropriation, one of the things that really fucked me up was after the verdict was announced, um, Ammon Bundy, who was one of the men on the trial, he tweeted, free at last, free at last. Thank oh God, God almighty, we are free at last. And I was like, oh, what is up with these people? Like, are they just so... Um, unaware and clueless that like it was like the peak appropriation and I couldn't handle but that this, these are the types of people who would like perform an action like this and feel like they're getting um, you know real justice when they're found not guilty and can be let go. Hopefully we can keep this in the headlines and have it not be forgotten and all the deluge around election day um, we'll keep publishing articles about Standing Rock and really keep some focus on it. Okay, we're at the end of the show, but before we wrap it up, I want to share some feedback from a listener who tweeted at us at Bitch Media um, to say that in the last episode of Back Talk, where we talked about uh, Hillary Clinton being gaslit by Donald Trump in the presidential debate, I didn't do a very good job defining the term gaslighting. And since this is a form of psychological abuse that uh, is important for people to recognize and see in their own lives and in the lives of people they know, um, I just wanted to reshare the definition of gaslighting and hopefully do a better job of explaining it this time. So um, this is quoting from an article at everydayfeminism.com that's about recognizing gaslighting in your own life. It's by Chris Nelson. Um, And here's the definition that Chris Nelson provides. 
that gaslighting is a form of psychological abuse in which information is twisted or spun, selectively omitted to favor the abuser, or false information is presented with the intent of making victims doubt their own memory, perception, and sanity. And so gaslighting is a tactic that's used to destabilize your understanding of reality, making you constantly doubt your own experiences. So that's what gaslighting means. And in the context that we're talking about it, two weeks ago, we were talking about Donald Trump saying, you know, basically all the accusations that are coming at him about the way he's treated women, about um, the way he's treated people of color, him turning that back around and saying, no, that's not true. It was you. Or, or just changing the subject entirely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Being like, what about your emails? Uh, and you're a monster. You're a nasty lady. Um, I think that's also a tactic of gaslighting. Um, where you just turn everything around on the person that you're abusing. So thanks for thanks for pointing that out. If you're a listener and you ever have feedback on something we say and either think we should expand on it or should clarify, um, just either tweet at us or email us. Amy and I love to hear from everybody about what you think of the show. Okay, so at the end of every episode, we share one thing we've read, one thing we watched, and one thing we heard this week. Um, I can get started with one thing I read because I have been having very bad habits recently, Amy. <laughs> I've been staying up till like one in the morning, reading a book every night, and I'm losing sleep. And that book is Outlander. <laughs> actually, actually I think staying up till one in the morning reading is so precious and amazing. <laughs> and I'm so glad you're doing that. <laughs> it reminds me of being in high school. I used to do this when I was in high school and like just stay up reading a book. Um, all night. Outlander is a fantasy series by Diana Gabaldon, um, and it is a sexy, sexy fantasy series. Oh, okay. I see what's <laughs> happening now. <laughs> in which this English woman falls back in time to the Scottish Highlands um, and uh, meets up with some sexy Scots, fights, fights some battles, kills a wolf, you know, she's got to do a lot, but she makes a lot of time to have sex with a sexy Scottish Highlander named Jamie. So it's just like a really fun fantasy book. And I think as you were talking about watching sports to get your mind out of the election gutter, I've been reading this book every night and it's just like wipes my mind free of everything that's been happening in the world right before I fall asleep. So instead of dreaming of Donald Trump, I've been dreaming of Scottish Highlanders. <laughs> Um, I, I need to figure out how I can also slay wolves and then have sexy sex. I like amazing um, time management. That we there. So Outlander, people have been telling me to read this book for years because it's, an, it's now a TV series on the stars channel that a lot of people really like. It's gotten really positive reviews. We've had a couple articles about it, a bitch, but I finally got around to reading the book and it has been ruining my sleep schedule. <laughs> Um, so I want to talk about something I'm watching or that I watched. It's 13th. It's his documentary by Ava DuVernay, who was the director of Selma. Um, this is a really powerful documentary and it should be required viewing in all schools, all businesses, all organizations of every size. Uh, it's really about examining like the role of um, race and the U.S. criminal justice system and how it continues to fail brown and black people and um, keep them incarcerated, you know, in, in a way where it can feel like it is the new Jim Crow. You know, like the new Jim Crow was like the was an extension of um, the ending of the enslavement of African folks. But like the new Jim Crow is like 
to keep people oppressed by putting them in jail and prison. Um, it is so good and like has so much good information. Um, and I think it really shines a light on something that we don't talk about nearly enough. Um, and like the disproportionate impact it has on black and brown communities. So check it out. It's called 13th and it is on Netflix. Great. And to close out the show, we've got um, a new band who I like, um, Jen Wasner, who's the was the in the band Y Oak. She's from Baltimore, has a new solo project called Flock of Dimes. And you know me, I love bedroom dream pop. I love kind of like ethereal pop music that uh, sounds like something you'd fall asleep to. And that's exactly what Flock of Dimes is. Um, so this is from Jen Wasner and the song is called The Joke. This is off her solo album that was just released um, last month. It's called If You See Me, Say Yes. And this song is called The Joke. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Send us your feedback. Talk listeners, Sarah here with just a quick note. Our next propaganda podcast episode is called Raising Feminist Kids, and we want to share your stories and your ideas. So here's the question. What's one thing that you do to help kids grow up into feminist adults? Record a voice memo about just one conscientious thing that you keep in mind while interacting with kids, your kids, friends, kids, students, cousins, any kids, don't have to be yours, and email it to us at sarah at bword.org. So that's a voice memo about raising feminist kids and email it to sarah with an h at bword.org. Thanks and keep an ear out for your stories and ideas on next week's propaganda. Thanks for listening to Backtalk. This podcast is hosted by Sarah Merck and Amy Lamb from Bitch Media. The show is produced by Alex Ward. Bitch Media is a reader and listener supported feminist nonprofit. If you want to support the show and our work, please head over to bitchmedia.org and donate.